I will say, I think it has felt to many people in the Pacific Northwest that the pace of these negotiations doesn't match the magnitude of impact, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Now, we know that there are lots of issues between Canada and America. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Scotty Greenwood, together with my good friend, Chris Sands. And we are delighted to have a topic that a lot of people might not know about, Chris. We're going to talk today, I think, about one of the oldest treaties, um, if not in the world, certainly between Canada and the United States, and quite impactful. We're going to talk about the Columbia River Treaty. And if you don't know about it, don't worry, because uh, Canusa Streets, we're here for you. So Chris, maybe you could uh, introduce our very special guest who I just got to meet in Montana uh, just recently and had a wonderful uh, experience over at the Pacific Northwest Economic Region. So delighted that Penmore introduced us to Steve. And Chris, maybe you could introduce him properly to our listeners. Oh, glad to, Scotty. And I'm excited that we have him. Um, Steve Wright had a He's had a 40-year career in the Pacific Northwest energy industry, spending 32 years at the Bonneville Power Administration, which is a big player, obviously, in the Columbia River Basin. Um, the last 12 of those years, uh, the most recent 12, he's been administrator and CEO, and he did actually spend nine years managing the Washington, D.C. office, so he uh, he knows the other Washington, too, uh, which is very nice. So I like to think of it as the Washington that takes, and then out west we have the Washington that gives, at least a good topic for today's interview. He's, um, he's someone who's been involved in uh, Columbia River Treaty issues since the mid-1990s. Uh, when the original entitlement return agreements had to be negotiated. And as the Bonneville Power Administration Administrator, uh, Steve was the chairman of the U.S. entity designated by Presidential Executive Order as the U.S. lead for implementing the Columbia River Treaty. Uh, and under his leadership, the initial joint studies with the Canadian entity of post-2024 Columbia River Treaty operations, sort of forecasting, were initiated. And he led the establishment of that process, which led to the regional recommendation in December 2013. And everything, in some ways, flows from that. So, Steve, it's wonderful to have you. Thanks so much for giving us some time. Well, thank you for the opportunity to join with you. I really appreciate that we're looking for ways to um, make the Canadian-American relationship work better. And uh, certainly we've had a long history of uh, having a very strong relationship between British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest through the Columbia River Treaty. So I love to talk about it. Well, and maybe I'll just start start off first and then and then kick it over to Chris after you, after after I take my first shot here, Steve. Um Help us understand, you know, water issues, availability of water is something that um, maybe in Canada they take for granted uh, because there is so much water and it's plentiful um, and, you know, fresh water, salt water, all that. But we've had massive droughts now ongoing that have hit the western part of the United States in particular, but really I think we can anticipate water wars, you know, for maybe the rest of our lifetime and our kids. So, can you put into context for us, like, where is the Columbia River? What is the treaty all about? And and, and just sort of at a really high level, what, what does it mean in terms of our joint watershed management in Canada and the United States? Yeah, I think it's important to understand the topography of the Pacific Northwest to understand why we have a Columbia River Treaty. So uh, the U.S. was building dams on the Columbia, starting with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, built uh, Bonneville and Grand Coulee dams, and then a series of others. 
And the engineers figured out that there was a limited amount of what, storage capability that could be built in the United States, uh, Grand Coulee being the big one. But the biggest opportunities were in Canada, where the Columbia begins, because it's up against the edge of the Rockies, so the water falls a long way in a short distance. That creates the opportunity to build high-head dams that can store a lot of water, and you can move that water up and down uh, as a storage facility. So uh, the U.S. and Canada began talking about these uh, uh, potential for building dams in Canada and the late 1940s and all the way through the 1950s. And an agreement was reached that led to the Columbia River Treaty, which essentially said uh, the U.S. would provide uh, some funding to Canada to help them build the dams. Uh, $64 million for flood control benefit and uh, what was described as one half of the additional power that would be produced at U.S. dams as a result of the Canadian dams uh, being built. So previously, if we had no storage, water would be spilled past the dams and not go through the turbines. So can we increase the energy capability there? Uh, it, it really was a, a, a tremendous way of thinking about how do we share a river that crosses an international boundary? How do we find ways for us both to be able to benefit from it? And for the most part, it has worked really well for 60 years. Um, a key element that's worth just talking about for a moment, because it's why the issue comes up now, is that the U.S. and Canada both recognized that there was a need to provide enough revenue to pay for those dams. And uh, so they were planning to amortize them over 60 years. So the treaty went into effect in 1964 with an expectation that things would change in 2024 when the 60 years was up. So. Steve, when they when they were negotiating a treaty, um, one of the things that strikes me about the Columbia River Treaty, when you compare it to some of the other disputes we have, like the Keystone Pipeline, for example, was this was a formal government to government agreement. They, they we had the State Department involved and Canada's Foreign Ministry involved, as well as some input from the states, uh, from Washington State and also from British Columbia. How did all of that work? Was it a very formal process? Has it always been? Uh, one of those kind of things that operates at multiple levels? Yeah, there was an international commission that actually looked at the engineering work that had been done and, and uh, made some recommendations about how to be able to share the benefits between the two countries. And that started a negotiation process. And you're right, it was a, uh, a process that uh, involved both federal governments. And of course, in Canada, they have different constitutions. So natural resources are uh, greater control by the province. So the province played a big role. The federal government played a big role. And on the U.S. side, uh, the region was really engaged primarily through uh, the Bonneville Power Administration uh, and the utilities that buy power from Bonneville uh, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for flood control. And at the core of the treaty, it is a flood control and power arrangement. Uh, that um, I would say that there was a, a very large engagement from the province and the Pacific Northwest region in the development of the original treaty. And you can see that in terms of the executive order that was agreed to uh, in 1964 when the treaty was put in place. Uh, Lyndon Johnson signed that uh, executive order and, and created this thing that you referenced earlier, the U.S. entity. So the U.S. entity is the administrator of the Bonneville Power Administration. You might call them the CEO. Uh, and the 
uh, chief engineer of, of the Northwestern Division of the Army Corps of Engineers. Those two people alone are the U.S. entity. Uh, there actually is no staff for the U.S. entity. Those entities are supposed to bring their staff along to make sure the work gets done. Uh, and so that uh, was a recognition that uh, really that the implementation of the treaty was going to be run by folks within the region. Uh, on the Canadian side, BC Hydro took the responsibility. And so they, uh, in effect, are the uh, Canadian entity. And so the, the U.S. entity and the Canadian entity have been meeting annually for 60 years with lots of work in between to make sure that the actual implementation of the treaty went uh, as planned. One of the things I remembered about when this, all, when the current round of negotiations began was there were some environmentalists who were concerned about the impact of the dams on the river on, on wildlife, on the ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit about those concerns and, and if, if there's anything that, that in particular has been difficult to talk about or difficult to negotiate with the Canadians? Well, I won't be able to speak too much about difficult to negotiate with the Canadians because uh, I'm now outside the federal government and not part of that family that's uh, that's having those negotiations. But I will say that uh, when we put together uh, the process that resulted in what became known as the regional recommendation in 2013, uh, after about three years worth of effort, there was a recommendation that came forward that uh, I would say has generated broad support in the Northwest. There was a fundamental discussion about the fact that it had been a power and flood control treaty and that there was a need to introduce the ecosystem elements or environmental health benefits to the uh, treaty negotiations. And I, I think a cornerstone of that regional recommendation is it's a three-legged stool that uh, it needs to address the power issues, the flood control issues, but it really needed to introduce in a way that um, it has been discussed, but it was not embedded in the treaty to address environmental health. When I say it has been discussed, there are a number of uh, sub-agreements that have been put in place over the years. And certainly with the passage of the National Environmental P Policy Act and the Endangered Species Act in the late 60s and early 70s, those acts apply to the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, the Bonneville Power Administration, uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, because it operates Grand Coulee Dam. And so, uh, a number of um, agreements have been reached between the two countries that help to address the ecosystem issues of, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, the U.S. Pacific Northwest, as well as providing support for issues, ecosystem issues in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the open questions still is, well, how will this all work, though, uh, in a renegotiated treaty? How does ecosystem health come in? We know that there are some key issues out there, um, both in terms of flow to help salmon uh, and uh, summer and spring. And in addition, uh, particular concerns about uh, fish passage past uh, Chief Joseph and Grand Coulee, where today there is no fish passage, which presents, uh, prevents salmon from being able to uh, re-enter the Canadian borders. So that's a good segue, Steve. So the, the current treaty expires in 2024. So, right. So roughly two and a half years. So, so why are we talking about it now? What's going on now? And, and maybe just at a really practical level, this, what, what are the equities involved? You mentioned the fish and the salmon. That's got to be incredibly important to a lot of people, including native people um, from the area. Um, but there are agricultural interests, there's power, there's water. Maybe you could just walk us through 
why now? Why is this a topic now? Uh, and and kind of what's at stake here for the various for the various stakeholders? Yeah, let me offer a friendly amendment that the treaty will not terminate in 2024, but it changes. So the framers of the treaty understood that once the dams were built, they would be built, and uh, therefore you would have to continue to operate. And while they did not want to uh, decide uh, how benefits would be allocated between the two countries, they did want there to be a framework for that discussion. So uh, flood control was paid for for 60 years, um, eight plus million acre feet of, of storage in the Canadian dams that can be used for flood control with that $64 million that I mentioned earlier. Post 2024, the treaty changes such that the US has the ability to get flood control uh, benefits from Canada, but it will have to make additional payments. And there is a mechanism that's described as called upon. The US will call upon Canada and say, we need flood control. And then the U.S. is supposed to provide a payment in the form of the opportunity cost for Canada. Uh, there's some pretty significant issues there. Uh, what are the provisions for how called upon will be used? How, how will the methodology work for the calculation of opportunity cost? Um, really difficult issues, actually, to resolve. And those, we would hope, would be in place by 2024 because uh the question that flood control changes to what I described as somewhat ad hoc and somewhat unplanned uh, post uh, 2024 if you're just relying on the treaty provisions. The second really big issue that's in there is the uh, what's called the entitlement return. Remember I described that we U.S. agreed to share 50% of the downstream power benefits from the Canadian storage, and that comes in the form of energy and what we call capacity that is uh, paid to Canada on an annual basis. Uh, the, uh, the framers of the treaty anticipated that the uh, entitlement return benefits would decline over time, uh, but they put in place a methodology that assumed that the U.S. power system would evolve in ways that it has not. It assumed that we would build a lot of coal plants, and we did. We built a lot of energy efficiency, and recent, more recently, we built a lot of wind. And because of that, uh, the amount that the U.S. is paying to Canada in terms of the entitlement return is far in excess of what the treaty framers anticipated and uh, from the power perspective here in the US, far in excess of the value that's derived. So there is a need to renegotiate the power provisions. The treaty anticipated that and said that uh, 10 years in advance of 2024, either country had the unilateral right to issue a 10 year notice of termination of the power provisions of the treaty. And the idea was, we don't really know who's going to be the winner or the loser here, but we figure that somebody will be. And if either country has a unilateral right to issue this notice, then uh, whoever is not doing well under the treaty will come to the table and there will be a, um, a new negotiation that will help to make sure that uh, the benefits are fairly allocated. Uh, so this has really been a, a significant issue for the power interests in the U.S. because it's now 2021 and that notice has not been issued, despite the fact that uh, we perceive that there are these overpayments that are going to Canada at this point. So those are the two big issues beyond ecosystem. So 
Last question for me. So who are the, who's the cast of characters? Steve, you and I were just at, in Montana in Big Sky at the Pacific Northwest Economic Region Annual Summit. There was a lot of discussion of Columbia River Treaty. To give us in a, in a very real sense, like who's, who's got the, the megaphone on the U.S. side? Who's got the megaphone on the Canadian side? Where, where are we actually with this? Cause what I heard you just say a few moments ago is the U.S. is overpaying and we haven't, we haven't really, uh, gotten the process going to, to your satisfaction yet. So, so maybe where exactly are we as of, as of today? Well, the regional recommendation was provided to the State Department in 2013, and the, and the State Department uh, took some time to, about uh, issuing what's called the CERC 175, which is the document that the State Department needs to have to establish the negotiating position of the United States. Uh, and uh, once they got that issued, uh, the treaty discussions uh, began with Canada, and I'm trying to remember exactly, it was either 2017 or 2018, and there have now been 10 sessions back and forth. And I think the feeling was that the U.S. and Canada really should make a good faith effort to try to resolve things before going to the point of issuing the, the notice. Uh, I th so the, the key here right now are the federal governments um, backed up by the regions, uh, in this case, Bonneville and the Corps of Engineers and a host of other federal agencies that are involved in these negotiations, uh, and uh, the federal government on their side and BC Hydro and tribes that are involved in that discussion. Those folks are the, the ones that are controlling this discussion at this moment. Most of the rest of us who are impacted by it are uh, seeking to have uh, our voices heard in this conversation and uh, uh, hoping that um, that our interests are fully represented but the but the game right now is really between or inside of those negotiations you know the thing that strikes me just listening to you is you know when the nafta was being renegotiated a couple of years ago the north american free trade agreement um Everybody said we're going at lightning speed. We got the new USMCA negotiated in faster than you can imagine a treaty ever being negotiated. And, you know, there are several global treaties, including the Doha round, you know, international global treaties on many things uh, that haven't been signed and negotiated. The, the U.S. still hasn't ratified the law of the sea. I think that's been around for longer than we've been alive. So you're reminding me in this conversation that... USMCA and NAFTA, that trade policy was an outlier because we got it done in like a year and a half with three countries. And here we are with something that is incredibly important, but more limited in scope than the NAFTA. And we're at it for years and years. And we're still not um, looks looks like we're not we don't have a, a an agreement in principle or anything else. So anyway, just just an observation there that uh, these things do take a long time. And if there isn't a lot of attention and a lot of effort, um, maybe at the very highest levels, they, they can drag on a long time. I will say, I think it has felt to many people in the Pacific Northwest that the pace of these negotiations doesn't match the magnitude of impact, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Now, we know that there are lots of issues between Canada and America, and that uh, we may not be the premier issue to be addressed. And yet, it does seem like there's some really important things that need to get resolved. And we're anxious for them to be resolved uh, quickly. Steve, let me pick up on that because I, I want maybe if you could uh, to have you talk a little bit about what happens if we fail. And what's in my mind is not just being a professor and failing people, but uh, but rather that 
if you remember back in the 1990s, we let the Pacific Salmon Treaty that we had kind of go over. And then we were in a period with no treaty. We had to kind of patch it together and it made it, it created a crisis at that point. And up in the Pacific Northwest, nobody needs a reminder that softwood lumber has been similar. We, we let an agreement expire and then try to cobble one back together with people thinking, well, maybe, maybe just walking away will, um, will be the spark we need for a better deal. What happens if the two governments get to 2024 or 2023 and they're unable to agree? Can these negotiations just continue? Does the agreement that we have now just go into suspension or could we lose everything? Could it all collapse? What's your, what's your sense of what the failure case looks like maybe to focus our minds in getting this done on time? Well, there are uh, two things that happen for sure under the treaty. Uh, number one, the entitlement return is an evergreen provision and it stays in place absent uh, either the 10-year notice and then the 10-year notice running out and uh, termination of those provisions or a renegotiation of the agreement. So uh, uh, from our perspective, that's worth in excess of $150 million a year net to the US. In other words, we're overpaying the value by $150 million a year. So that would be unfortunate. The uh, flood control provisions will revert to this uh, called upon uh, provision that I described earlier, which again is a bit ad hoc and unplanned. And I think what we heard uh, at Penware from the Canadian representatives was that uh, they have offered as part of the negotiation assured flood operations. Uh, and that should be something that the US should want. So they of course, what that means, if, if there isn't agreement, then you will not have assured flood operations and the risk that comes with that. So, you know, that, um, you know, that risk is always substantial. Although uh, we would guess that the value of that flood control is probably in the low tens of millions of dollars per year. Um, the, the highest value in the treaty has historically been on the power side. Um, and so we're, I think we're trying to work out here a flood risk management issue that is important, extremely important. It's a human health and safety issue, uh, but probably valued in that low tens of millions of dollars versus power provisions that are worth you know, that $150 million a year plus. Uh, those are the, the key trade-offs. I would say the ecosystem interests are anxious for their issues to be addressed as well. And so uh, absent uh, an a new agreement of some kind, then they would, I think, believe that uh, their issues are not getting addressed in the way that they would like them to be. Well, that, that goes maybe to my, my my last question. Thinking in terms of a world in which, you know, climate is changing, we have negotiations coming up later this year in Glasgow as part of the UN process. We've all been trying to get a handle on the big picture of how the, the climate has been changing. To what extent does that global phenomenon complicate the issues in the Columbia River in terms of water levels, snowfall, any of the elements that are there? Are, are, is what you're doing harder because of the backdrop of global climate change making things unpredictable or more difficult? Uh, there are two uh, answers to that question. So when I was at Bonneville, we uh, we went out and we hired the best regional modelers that there were. They were the, they provided the input on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. They, you know, those reports also have regional subsections to them. And so they had done that work, uh, did that with the Bureau of Reclamation and the Corps of Engineers. And uh, that work has also been updated even just within the last year. And interestingly enough, what it finds is that the expectation is that the level of precipitation 
in the Northwest, and this includes up in the Canadian portion of the Northwest, will stay relatively constant. You know, there are always ranges around the numbers, but there isn't a, an expectation that the expected value would be a lower level of precipitation. But the problem is higher temperatures means uh, more rain and less snow. Well, uh, when you have a storage limited system, then more rain and less snow can be uh, somewhat problematic. Uh, the, the other piece of this um, is uh, probably the more recent part, because that part, it should evolve over time. And I, I think the system can probably manage it as you see that evolution occur. It's the question of whether you will have more severe weather events. Um, flood risk uh, and the management of the system uh, has the most difficult time when you have rain on snow events. And so if you have uh, uh, early rains um, because the weather gets warm, then, then the question is, well, what kind of flows will you see? And particularly, of course, spring is when you're going to have the highest uh, flows to begin with, because that's when you get snow melt coming out. So um, that one is the hard one <laughs> you know, have to, to figure out. And I, uh, I think we've got some, some work to do and probably, it has always struck me that the, the new Columbia River Treaty negotiation will probably have to have uh, some contingencies for the fact that that's uh, more unpredictable than, and we're not gonna be able to rely on the historical record to define how we will manage the system. Absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you very much. This was exactly what I wanted, a bit of an insight into the complicated world in which you live, but which for the rest of us is just this treaty that they're working on renegotiating. Uh, you've really unpacked it for us, and I, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise, and I know you must be busy with all of this, so I appreciate you sharing your time as well. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to throw in one other thing you didn't ask about that I think is important. I was just going to ask you to do that. So perfect. You know, I think it's important to recognize there is a provision that Senator Cantwell introduced uh, into the infrastructure package that has now passed the Senate, uh, was just introduced in uh, in middle of July, uh, that um, directly impacts the Columbia River Treaty. Uh, her thought, and uh, I think it is a very worthwhile thought, is that the way the power system operates in the U.S. and in Canada is changing dramatically. Uh, we are adding a lot of wind and solar. We have very aggressive goals to get clean energy standards in the Western states that is going to cause the power system to operate very differently. And Canada has very aggressive carbon emission reduction goals as well. And they're also building the Site C project on the Peace River, which probably means that they will operate their river system differently. The piece of being a separate, separate river basin from the Columbia, but you would want to manage those in coordination. Uh, her thought was we should really, A, um, do an extensive study that tries to figure out what's the best way to operate this river system that will make a big difference. Columbia makes a big difference in electric power systems. 60% of the electricity in the Northwest comes from hydropower, most of it from the Columbia River. So the way that system operates makes a big difference in terms of the Northwest system and even down into California. Uh, and so uh, if we were able to think about how to modernize the operation of the river to reflect the fact that we have very changing societal goals out here, it makes a lot of sense. So she said, put $10 million aside to do that study. And then that study may result in the opportunity for more trade between the US and Canada, which means you may need more transmission. And so there actually is uh, somewhere between 750 million to a billion dollars for new transmission if 
the studies were to pan out and if the Canadians were to reform the entitlement return. There's a carrot there to fix that uh, overpayment that the U.S. is making to Canada. So it's an exciting provision. And with the infrastructure bill moving forward, it looks like there's a high probability that will be enacted. Well, thank you so much for that, Steve. And and I joined Chris in thanking you. And I was just going to give you an opportunity for one last um, word of wisdom, if you will, uh, to folks that that are tuning into Canusa Street. If there's if there's one thing you want them to understand about the Columbia River and the Columbia River Treaty, what would what would that be? Uh, the Columbia River Treaty has been a model for how a, a river that crosses an international border should be managed. Uh, all the way back to the 1960s. Uh, these are tough negotiations that go on between Canada and the United States because we both have constituencies that we represent. And yet at the end of the day, it's always been about creating the best value for society and then finding a way to be able to share that. I think society's values have changed and we have an opportunity to be able to update and modernize here. Um, some of my most treasured relationships though from my time at Bonneville are with the Canadians. And my hope and expectation is that we will find a way to work through these really difficult issues in the next few years and then manage this river the way it has been for the last 60 years for the next 60 years. Very well said. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's so nice to to, uh, join with you for this conversation. I think I learned a lot today, Chris, a a primer on a river basin and a treaty that I actually didn't know anything about before I attended a conference last week in Montana. So I I appreciate the discussion with Steve and and uh, I think we're going to hear a lot more about, you know, this Canada-U.S. issue that that affects, uh, I guess, 60 percent of the power that's in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. That's a pretty big deal. It is a pretty big deal. And I I think it's also something Steve said at the end. It is an example of Canada-U.S. sort of negotiations or diplomacy at its best. We respect the Canadians. It doesn't mean we don't disagree on the issues, but we have a process and we work those things through even if it takes time. And when you do compare that to some of the other disputes we have that haven't had that structure – we often either see the talks break down or a lot of frustration on both sides. And so it, it feels a little bit funny to say, yay, process, but uh, but there's a process here and I think it makes the relationship better. So uh, great example and maybe we can learn something from you know this what? for the I'm rest of the You know I'm all for process. I'm all for institutionalization of things. You know, at this Penworth Summit that I keep talking about, where Steve and I met, we, you know, the delegates there, which are state legislators and provincial legislators from that region of North America, passed a resolution um, about something that you've been advocating for many, many years, which is that the U.S. Congress set up a commission to really look at the big Canada U.S. issues. So I think I think process and institutionalization uh, sometimes are really helpful. Uh, when you have a big relationship that both like Canada US that both sides take for granted. And I will also just say to our Canusa Street family here that today we heard an American perspective. We heard a state of Washington perspective. There is a distinctly different British Columbia perspective on this issue. Uh, they might not agree that the U.S. has been overpaying. Um, and there's an important issue uh, uh, perspective, I should say, from indigenous and First Nations communities. And I think we want to 
we want to have a few more episodes here on Canusa Street Podcast where we, we really hear from a lot of different points of view so that hopefully by the end of this, after you've binge listening for a while, you really have a 360 view of the Columbia River Treaty and the, and the basin and, 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 and how it is a model for or for what to do or what not to do with other agreements. Absolutely, Scotty. And I, I think that's another way in which this is an important issue. It does include local communities. Uh, it includes states and provinces and it includes the federal government. Uh, the Columbia River, uh, much like Canusa Street, is not a one-way street. <laughs> that's right. All right, y'all. Thanks so much, Chris. Always good to be with you. Same to you, Scotty. I love the street. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Canusa Street. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.